Welcome to the Unfair Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Onfit podcast, a weekly discussion on key trends in investment and economic policy from some of the world's leading commentators. I'm Emma McGarthy, Head of Onfit Sustainable Policy Institute, and today we will be discussing COP27 outcomes, pledges, and the Glasgow Financial Alliance for Net Zero Initiatives, or GFANS. So I'm delighted to be joined today by Alex Mishi, who is Head of the Glasgow Financial Alliance for Net Zero. Um, so welcome, Alex, um, and thank you so much for joining me today. It's uh, it's a pleasure to have you here. Thank you very much for having me. Lovely. So let's dive into the questions. Um, and I think before we go into COP and the questions of the role of the financial sector in driving climate mitigation, um, I think it'd be really fantastic just to get a, a quick snapshot um, of GFANS, uh, mm -hmm. why it was formed um, and its purpose as an alliance and its kind of overall objectives. Sure. I think to do that, you have to actually go back a, a few further than we've existed. So, so GFANS was launched at the uh, Biden summit, Earth Day summit in um, 2021. COVID always makes it hard to get your dates right with these things. But um, what happened was um, Mark Carney was appointed. Obviously, the UK were the um, COP presidents at the time. And Mark Carney was appointed he, um, the prime minister's finance advisor for COP26. Um, so there was a team in the UK Treasury supporting the finance and private finance aspects of uh, COP26. And Mark Gunney was also the, the UN Special Envoy for Climate Finance. So we had quite a broad ranging agenda there. There was uh, making um, climate financial disclosures mandatory. So taking the work of the TCFD and, and putting it into rules and regulations around the world. There was scaling voluntary carbon markets. Um, and there was also supporting uh, climate risk assessment in central banks and, and other regulators. But one part of it was um, ensuring that the private financial system was supporting the transition to net zero. And again, just to take a bit of a step back about where this all came from, um, obviously the Paris Agreement, um, which all, all governments in the world signed up to, had um, a limit to hit uh, for global heating to two degrees, but to pursue best and uh, efforts for 1.5 degrees of, of global heating. And then since the Paris Agreement, the IPCC, so the global body of scientists that support the UN, unfortunately found more emphatic evidence that irreversible tipping points happen before two degrees and, and, and sometimes shortly after 1.5. And the, the irreversible part is, is to keep it there. So like, you know, once the ice caps melt and, and all the sea levels rise and it's no longer reflecting the sun and all the permafrost thaws out and all the methane's released, there's nothing potentially you could do about that. Um, so the IPCC also found that to limit global heating to 1.5, you needed a net zero global economy by, by 2050 and, and fairly rapid decarbonization starting this decade um, to, to achieve that. Um, and that me meant at state level, so governments, you had at the start of the um, UK COP presidency about 20% of global emissions covered by net zero commitments. By the time of the COP26 in Glasgow, uh, or actually ahead of it, you had 90%. So most governments in the world had made 2050 net zero commitments, uh, and pretty much all advanced economies had. So what uh, was realized by, by Mark Carney in the COP26 presidency is that you just won't achieve a net zero global economy without the private financial system working to support that, to finance that transition. It's going to be 
um, a transition of the scale of the industrial revolution at the pace of the digital revolution. So we have to transform our economies pretty radically in the next 10 to 15 years. Um, so what already existed was uh, the Net Zero Asset Owners Alliance and the Net Zero Asset Managers Initiative. They were in isolation in, in something called the Race to Zero run by the UN. So what is a credible Net Zero commitment? It's not just to be Net Zero um, on your own operations. So, you know, your buildings and your your how your employees get to work, but also your crucially for financial institutions, your finance emissions. So what activity are you actually funding? But also you can't just commit to be net zero by 2050. You have to take near-term action to implement that set, near-term targets for 2030, et cetera. But when we were looking at this issue, there was no banking alliance, there was no insurance alliance, there was no alliance for stock exchanges, credit rating agencies uh, and the like. So what we and there's also no forum for all of these different sectors to collaborate and work out what the common challenges are what what the common gaps are what what needs to happen um in order to actually build a net zero financial system so we launched the glasgow financial uh the glasgow uh financial alliance for net zero gfans um as i said uh april 2021 alongside the net zero banking alliance um so it was to set um initially to set the standard for what a credible net zero commitment meant for financial institutions and to our goal was to get the core of the financial system to commit to net zero uh by cop 26 and i and i think we achieved that and then since then that was you know a year ago now we've been working on all sorts of things to, to then implement those commitments Wonderful. And yeah, I think we can go uh, a little bit later into the implementation um, and the role that the financial sector can play and solutions to, to driving this transition. But I think just to just to take a little bit of a step back and you, and you mentioned COP26, um, what were the expectations from COP27 uh, this year and what kind of progress do you think we've achieved between COP26 and COP27, especially considering the, the current geopolitical climate of the last year? Um, and you mentioned also, of course, the uh, the kind of hitting the the two degrees, one point five degrees. Obviously, the UN has kind of urged now that the agreed one point five heating limit is is barely within reach. So, where where do you think we are there, and and where how do you think kind of COP twenty seven went in in achieving all of those things? Yeah, so I think the the geopolitical backdrop definitely makes an impact to these things. These are, after all you know, political negotiations and grounded in the real world of, of what's happening. So obviously the um, Russia invasion of Ukraine, the cost of living, inflation around the world, the energy crunch has, was not the best backdrop for, for climate negotiations to really push on ambition. Nevertheless, I think given where we were at various points this year, I think COP27 went well um, relative to what could have happened. There were obviously, um, you know, there was things like the loss and damage fund, which um, many um, developing countries have been campaigning for, prioritizing for up to 30 years now. Um, so there's, you know, a provisional agreement that that will be set up. Um, so that was an achievement for, for many countries. And also, you know, you have the UN Environment Programme, as you mentioned, saying that 1.5 is, is barely within reach. But, you know, you also have Fatih Birol, the head of the IEA, saying it definitely is within reach according to their calculations and, and we cannot give up on it. And so I think the fact that the parties, which is the term for all of the governments in the world, recommitted to 1.5 was also important and they did that. And we also had, you know, COP26 
had more of a build-up because there was COVID, so it was delayed. It was also in the Paris Agreement, the five-year, the five-year uh, target for coming back with more ambition. So I think, um, as well as the Italian co-presidency, so UK was G7 presidency, Italy was G20 presidency. You had a new Biden administration that made net zero a priority. So you almost had uh, geopolitical tailwinds going into cop, cop 26 so you had lots of not only did you have the glasgow pact which had fa phasing out and down fossil fuels and recommitment to 1.5 etc but you also had quite a lot of interesting side agreements on methane deforestation coal and the like so that was quite um, important as well as all the things we did with private finance and, and indeed official sector finance i think the egyptian presidency had a lot less time and it had a, a much more difficult geopolitical backdrop. So I think given that there were some positive things, their, their theme of the COP was from pledges to implementation. So they mm -hmm. wanted fewer instances of people coming up and making pledges and more granular discussions of how we're implementing the pledges that we've already made. Yeah, yeah. No, I think I think that's all. Uh, that's all a very valid point and, and nice to hear the positive uh, aspect of things as well. Um, I guess one of the things if uh, going in a little bit into this is COP27 was criticised for kind of a lack of fossil fuel progress. Um, why do you think this has happened um, and how do you think kind of developed nations can uh, can push this forward uh, in, in going into COP28 and, and, and future kind of uh, pledges um, and agreements as well? How can we kind of push fossil fuel progress and, and renewable energy progress? Yeah, I think the end of your question there is really important because you can't really have fossil fuel progress uh, without renewable energy progress. So yeah. um, I think they're often discussed too much in isolation. If you just reduce fossil fuel supply, you'll get energy crunches. So um, the IEA, the IPCC, they all do these models about what 1.5 uh, worlds might look like. What they all have a common... Um, if you pull out, we have a, a organization we work for work with called uh, BNF, and they've done a lot of analysis on all these scenarios, and they found that the average across them is that this decade, for every one dollar spent on fossil fuels, you need four dollars spent on renewable energy, and at, at the moment we're about one to one. So um, we need to four x that ratio in the next few years, which is pretty remarkable. Um, part of that is making the financial industry focused on it and you had some things like hsbc's uh, energy policy yesterday which is which is showing that some of these really giant um, financial institutions are, are taking the work of the iea and the energy transition uh, uh committee seriously and and implementing it in line with their net zero commitments um but you also need government action and that that's really crucial like planning restrictions licensing laws government financing subsidies like are we subsidizing clean energy are we subsidizing fossil fuels mm -hmm. how quick that can we license a new onshore wind farm a new offshore wind farm these are the things that really matter and these are the things that we as GFUNS have been working with governments with FIs with energy companies on um, and I think although there wasn't so much progress on fossil fuels at COP27 and fossil fuel supply and powering past coal etc as there was at COP26 I think what we did see was a really strong focus on mobilizing capital to renewable energy, to clean projects, to emerging markets and developing economies. And I think that positive part of the story is, is, is equally as important as the restricting 
finance or restricting production of, of, of fossil fuels. Yeah, yeah, no, and I, I think that that leads me on to my next question really, really nicely, um, which is kind of obviously mobilizing finance is really critical uh, to deliver action and urgent action. And I think that's a really positive story that you that you just shared there. So um, what can you say about the kind of the current state of climate finance and the role that it can play in providing solutions to climate mitigation and adaption? Um, and we can continue talking about renewable energy there, but also, I guess, how can we drive better collaboration between the private and the public sector and kind of develop that in, in terms of scaling up that private finance? Yeah, I think one really, so the, the top level is like, it's not enough, obviously, as as with all things when we're discussing climate at the moment. Um, we need massively more investment in, in renewables, in the transition, et cetera. But I think you're seeing really positive developments. Um, and I think one really interesting new development is something that we've been, uh, we at, at COP26, GFANS advocated for these new country platforms, which are a way to bring governments, private finance, MDBs, DFIs, philanthropies all together to focus on how do you actually finance um, climate strategies of, of countries, right? So every year at COP, they have to come with their NDCs, nationally determined contributions, um, which kind of say, this is what we're committing to, to reduce our emissions. But then coming out of that, you have a domestic climate strategy. And then coming out of that, ultimately you have projects, wind farms, you know, closing down coal plants, um, solar farms, grid in infrastructure, et cetera. So ultimately at the most granular level, this comes down to projects and projects need finance. Um, so these country platforms are a way to bring together all of the actors involved in, in developing and, and financing projects. Um, and what's been great this year is some of those country platform ideas have been taken forward. So the G7 has a process in the G20 called the Just Energy Transition Partnerships. So they announced one for South Africa in uh, COP26, but then shortly after COP27 at the G20 summit in Indonesia, the US, Japan, Indonesia, and, and GFANS supporting it announced uh, one for Indonesia. So that has clo closed down many coal plants over time and instead replaced it with um, renewable energy. Uh, and then yesterday, actually, we announced one for Vietnam as well, another heavily coal dependent developing economy um, that needs finance in order to provide affordable energy for their population like we get in um, advanced economies but without relying on coal uh, and that requires as you say very enhanced collaboration like you need better enabling environments finance won't flow unless the projects that matter unless the projects can be built quickly and built, built reliably, have the technology they need, um, have the de-risking importantly. So like, you know, if you're a global financial institution and you're investing in a um, developing economy, there can be all sorts of non-payment risk, essentially, whether it's political risk, financial uh, exchange risk, et cetera. So there are organizations like MEGA, which, so which is part of the World Bank that provide those guarantees to really uh, catalyze private investment and financing but they're not big enough, they're not being deployed at scale enough. And often that concessional finance doesn't actually crowd in private finance at the scale necessary. There's a really interesting report delivered um, 
at COP27 by uh, Lord Stern, who obviously did the UK's big climate report under, under Tony Blair's government, uh, and Vera Songwe, who is the uh, head of UN Environment, uh, UN Commission on Africa, um, which made this point really clearly. Like MDBs, uh, development finance organizations, philanthropies, governments, donors, they all need to think much harder about how can their capital be used really catalytically to scale um, private investment in clean tech, uh, clean energy in developing economies. And there's really promising signs that, that that's beginning to happen, particularly with these country platforms or, or just energy transition partnerships. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and maybe a bit of a challenging question, but w- mm. what are we also doing in developed countries? I mean, as an example, obviously we've been seeing in the news that we've just reopened a coal plant in the UK. <laughs> um, yeah. How are we dealing with that in, in our own countries, in, in developed nations, and, and how are we kind of scaling up renewable investment into infrastructures here as well? Um, again, looking at Germany, for example, coal plants have been reopened since the last year political crisis. Um, there's been arguments that, you know, this is short term, whilst this is happening, we're still increasing investments in renewable energy. But how is GFANS working with that? Is GFANS working with that? And, and what does that kind of, yeah, what does that mean? Yeah, so I think, um, you know, gov- governments have made in advanced economies net zero commitments and some of those are legal commitments like the one mm-hmm. in the UK. Uh, so any sort of publicly licensed um, uh, project should be in line with that net zero commitment. Um, I won't comment on individual projects, but it sure. is in, in GFANS and in the underlying alliances, the banking alliance, for example, they've made some science-based commitments as well. Um, but one thing I would say is that it's quite hard for, say, you're a domestic financial institution, so almost 100% of your exposures in your domestic economy. You can be a leader to some extent, but you can't ultimately diversify out of your country. Mm-hmm. And it, it, the same is true globally, right? So if you're the global financial system in aggregate can't diversify away from the global economy. So you can only in aggregate achieve a a net zero financial system if the global economy is also net zero. Now, you know, finance can catalyze, accelerate, um, make possible that net zero transition at the scale and the speed necessary, but it can't achieve it on its own. So domestic and international public policy is the key driver here, absolutely. So the point you make is really important one. I think the sort of geopolitical backdrop and the response to it it, it is two-handed. So in the short run, you know, there's been a necessity to keep homes heated, which has in some countries led to relying on more fossil fuels than was expected before Russia's invasion of Ukraine. But you've also seen some really positive progress. I mean, like the EU Repower Act and, and other bits of legislation around in response has actually brought forward their clean energy targets and net zero targets um, quite considerably in some, some cases like Germany. I mean, it's really made clear that clean energy is reliable energy for your security. You know, Putin can't invade the sun. He can't invade, well, hopefully not. <laughs> um, <laughs> but um, there's, a, there's actually a, an in, increasing consensus that energy security and, and climate policy are, are really aligned here. And you've seen obviously the Inflation Reduction Act and, under President Biden, and that's been a real positive news for, for climate, for clean energy. And I think it's really laid down a marker globally of, um, okay, you know, the world's largest economies, China, 
the EU, the US are really going all in on, on renewables. The amount of renewables that China adds each year is, is, is remarkable. So I think there is this, this global consensus now building, first of all, that clean energy is more geopolitically reliable for your energy security. B, that you know industries of the future will be powered by clean energy. Right, so both supplying the bits that make clean energy possible, but also, okay, if your steel or your concrete or your transport is powered by clean energy, that's going to be more attractive for investors and consumers around the world. So mm -hmm. I think you're starting to see quite a, a promising economic tipping points that make clean energy investment really quite attractive relative to fossil fuel investments. Now, that's not to say the fossil fuel stuff that's happened this year hasn't been bad. We have a climate budget. We have a climate budget, ultimately. You know, the climate, the planet, Earth doesn't care about geopolitical backdrops, et cetera. So we are using up the carbon budget quicker than we can afford to. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think also some of the arguments that we're hearing as well is that there was already uh, an energy crisis really before Ukraine and Russia there was not enough investment going into renewable energy. And this has already basically been highlighted more than actually caused by, <laughs> um, by the, by the um, Russian uh, invasion of Ukraine. So I think your conversation today and talking about the scaling up of renewable energy is, is yeah, super important. And, and hopefully that's something that we can really achieve in the next few years. Um, moving on to my, my next question. Um, Obviously, a really important part of this is transition planning, um, and this is something that we that we look at a lot and disclosure kind of coming up with a way that you can start to move your portfolio, transition your portfolio. So and GFAN's obviously published a framework um, on this. So can you talk me through your um, your transition plan, your approach to phasing out high emitting assets um, and aligning portfolios um, and kind of your pathways to towards that? Yeah, absolutely. So obviously um, all of the alliances within GFANS, whether it's banks or asset managers or asset owners, um, they set to, they agree to set targets within, um, to, to, well, first of all, they agree to be net zero by 2050. Second, set targets for 2030 or 2025 that are consistent with that. Um, the transition planning is actually not necessarily just about setting a target. It's about, it's a business-wide strategic board level activity um and i think you know the institutions and g fans have really seen that over the last 18 months like this is not this has moved from csr or esg departments across the entire organization okay if we're gonna you know decarbonize our energy portfolio 60 percent in the next seven eight years that requires the bankers in the energy department and the the whole energy department of, a, of these big global organizations to really understand what that means and think about how they're going to achieve that. So you're seeing really high levels of, of integration and um, implementation across entire um, massive organizations with, you know, hundreds of thousands of, of employees sometimes. So what we try to do as GFANS is provide the tools and the frameworks needed to reduce those transaction costs because, um, if that if there's clear impactful guidance and tools that are available then our members can implement those commitments more quickly and also you know um not every organization has 200,000 people some some have 50 people and some have one person working on this so we need to be uh, an inclusive organization for different sizes different sectors different geographies so 
what we've tried to do is put out a transition plan guidance framework that works that is um understandable you know it it is quite similar for those who are been doing tcfd disclosures it's about governance it's about targets and metrics it's about strategy um but crucially for us it's focused on on real economy emissions reductions because sometimes there's a confusion between financed emissions versus actual emissions reductions because as i was saying there's a need for a huge increase in investment in, in energy sector and some of that can be carbon intensive um, in the in the build phase but that's what's necessary so we need to be very clear that our actions as the financial in, uh, sector are reducing emissions in the real world rather than just on our balance sheet um, so it, it, we have four buckets of finance in, in our transition plan one is you know financing climate solutions you know your lithium-ion potentially one is uh, financing countries uh, sorry companies or activities that are already on a on a 1.5 degree pathway so maybe a big renewable energy supplier or electric vehicle maker the, the third is um, financing companies that are committed to aligning to 1.5 and hopefully you know this year that will be a, a big bulk of, of actual economic activity we want to see every you know country every every company commit to, to be uh, on a 1.5 degree pathway or, or net zero but that doesn't mean they already are so there's more work there to to work out well how do you tell if a company is committed is that a credible commitment are they committed to it uh, and then the fourth bucket of finance is, is the managed phase out of, of stranded assets or high emitting assets. So, you know, if you look at the work of bodies like Carbon Tracker and, and other IEA, et cetera, there's, it's clear that there's a lot of assets in the world, particularly if you think of coal, coal mines, thermal coal mines, that are just not consistent with the 1.5 world. They just can't operate through their natural economic life if we're going to limit global heating to 1.5 or even well below two degrees. So there needs to be a way to uh, manage the phase out of those assets in a responsible way that's fair to their employees that's fair to their customers their you know people who need the energy um so we've and also that requires finance as well so it goes back to the, my finance emissions uh point we need net zero committed financial institutions to fund those coal plants to bring about their closure 10 years earlier than than would have been possible without it and you know repurpose it as you sometimes they get repurposed as battery storage sometimes they get repurposed as solar farms whatever they're getting repurposed as requires finance to a, an existing coal asset so we've we're developing frameworks around that what are the guardrails what does it look like how do you make it economically uh, viable and then that's you know goes to the vietnam indonesia just energy transition partnerships that i was talking about how do we get the finance to those heavily coal-reliant countries that they need so that their, their population have clean energy, the people, the huge amounts of people working in coal have good jobs to replace them. Um, and that's all about managed phase-out, just energy transition. So that, that's our um, framework, and we, we hope it will be used by people around the world, not just institutions, but also governments thinking about making this mandatory so in the UK you have the transition plan task force which we are on the steering committee of and they've used our similar framework and they're thinking about how do we set this into standards such that all you know UK listed companies some maybe private companies as well have to set out their transition plans publicly. Mm -hmm. 
So what do you think a managed phase out of a high emitting asset should look like? Um, appreciate you're probably still working all of this out, but um, yeah, what should that look like? What should the time frame do you think be? And yeah, what kind of should that involve? Yeah, so we, we're working with um, bodies like the Rocky Mountains Institute, and actually we launched an Asia Pacific network uh, this year. Um, so I, sh I should start by saying, you know, there's been huge um, progress in, in countries like North America, the US, and, and indeed Europe on, on closing uh, assets, particularly coal, that are not consistent with, with net zero. And, and my co-chair, you know, the co-chair of GFANS, Mike Bloomberg, has been pretty instrumental in closing down a, a lot of coal plants while supporting the retraining, the reemployment of uh, the, the workforce. Um, so it's been done already, but I think what in, now needs to be done in uh, countries and geographies with quite different economics and, and development status. So that will require more work to work out. So if you think of the average age of a coal plant in the US is approximately 40 years, 30 to 40 years. The average age of a coal plant in APAC, Asia Pacific, is much younger, 10 to 20 years. So the, the economics involved in closing them down early is, is very different. So today uh, or tomorrow, I think it's today, we're launching uh, an expression of interest for firms to partner with us in the Asia Pacific region to think about how developing guidance um for that for for how do you close down coal plants in asia pacific in a responsible just but accelerated way and there are instances of that being done the asian development bank has that and indonesia have the uh, energy transit transmission mechanism and, and they're thinking about how do you create the financial flows uh to, to facilitate that but in answer to your question like what does an ideal one look like i think it's like taking say a thermal coal plant that's at the moment projected to run to 2040 say saying okay this is now longer gonna no longer going to produce thermal coal past 2030 this is what it's going to do instead it might be storing batteries as, as has happened in recently it might be building solar plants in the in the coal plant and it will be having um a specific um program or strategy of what to do with the employees a, a specific narrative about how we're going to supply clean energy, affordable energy for the local population. Um, and that's what these just energy transition partnerships are about. But it will also have a clear narrative or stamp to be worked out about why it's okay or why it's good actually for net zero committed financial institutions to finance that transaction, even if it brings an existing coal plant onto their books. Yeah, yeah, no, very good. Um, yeah, and I, I think you, you mentioned metrics as well, and obviously data is a, is really critical to uh, to achieve this. Um, and this was reiterated in COP twenty seven, and obviously GFANS has a new uh, linked open data utility. Um, be really great to hear a little bit about what this means, um, how this utility will help tackle greenwashing, and and how it will help kind of bridge the data gaps that we're that we're currently seeing, um, and making it more accessible and comparable as well, and Absolutely. supporting the transition plan. Yeah, no, I think this is a really positive development. Um, I'm hoping it will be uh, transformational. So what happened was uh, President Macron, who leads the One Planet Summit, and, and Mike Bloomberg announced uh, that they'd be coming together to support the UNFCCC, who, who own this climate action portal, um, in, in developing a uh, climate data um, public utility. 
So what was announced initially was a climate data steering committee that that really importantly brings together a lot of the global actors in this space, particularly regulators. So the Financial Stability Board, the OECD, the IMF, the UN. Uh, so really heavy hitters who who all have lots of data and all have a mandate to to think about and produce uh, public data on climate. But there is no one highly effective portal that people can access, whether you're a journalist, whether you're part of civil society, whether you're a financial analyst, whether you're a scientist, there's no one place you can go and find this high quality data. So that climate data steering committee was set up to think about it. And importantly, not only did it just have these big global regulators, standard setters, data providers, it also had private sector data providers, the biggest in the world. So it had, you know, your Bloomberg's, your MSCI's, your SMP, your Morningstars, et cetera, all part of it. So um, the Climate Data Steering Committee de developed their recommendations to COP27 and an RFP. So right now it's that RFP is being tendering. So can someone build for us something that matches our recommendations, which is that, you know, you, Emma, sat, sat at OMFIF can log into a portal and find the data you need on scope one, two, three emissions for a corporate, for a financial institution, presented in a very accessible, consistent way. And not only will it be about um, scope one, two, three emissions, it will also be about net zero transition. So what is the transition plan of this country? What's the transition plan of this company? What are their metrics and targets within that? And then over time, um, how are they delivering against those targets? And one of the things my, my other co-chair, Mark Carney's pointed out, is this will allow you, and it goes back to the conversation we're having about the beginning about not being able to diversify out of your country or not to being able to diversify out of the global economy. Um, you'll look at, say, X bank that is based in your country, say the UK, and you can see, well, are all UK banks not delivering? And is that perhaps because, you know, our housing stock isn't being retrofitted quickly enough because a bank can't just walk into someone's house and rip, rip out their gas boiler against their will or like install a load of insulation. It's not a bank's job. It needs, that's why we need that enhanced partnership with governments, public bodies and the financial sector and households and the real economy. Or actually is this bank underperforming relative to all the other banks uh, so they're not actually fulfilling their their promises and their commitments so you know sunlight is is the best disinfectant and i think having that free uh, accessible high quality data uh, utility will allow people to interrogate people's commitments their plans and whether they're being fulfilled so you know as a voluntary initiative we don't have enforcement powers that's that's for governments rightly so with democratic mm -hmm. mandates but what we can do is provide the data to for, for everyone to hold each other to account and indeed the information people need to make the right investments as well you know as we discussed about there's there's this global consensus coming that that clean energy and and clean industry is, is the future, but you need data to make that, that capital allocation decision correctly. Mm. That's a, a good point, actually. How and are you working with the regulators with all of this? So, for example, like the, the FCA, are you kind of working with them to, to try and bring that in? So it is perhaps mandatory and there is that expectation. Obviously, the FCA is, is doing a lot already and we, we've seen that it's really taking a lot of steps. But yeah, is GFUND working with the regulators? How is that looking from a kind of global standpoint as well? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so it's we have um, someone whose job it is to to engage with the regulators, who's who's super super fantastic, and you know Mark is the only person who's ever led two central banks. He led the Financial Stability Board. 
for um, I think 10 years. Mary Shapiro yeah. is the only person who's led both, who's the vice chair, she's um, and my boss, she's led the uh, SEC and the CFTC, the only person to ever done that. So we have a lot of, I'm, I've spent most of my career at, at the Bank of England as well, as have mm -hmm. others sent, we've got lots of regulators in there and, and we speak yeah. to them daily because ultimately this won't be, it just won't be achieved unless right. public policy regulators um, kind of step into that space. But I think we what we saw with the TCFD, the Task Force on Climate Related Financial Disclosures, for those who don't know it, um, which was kind of FSB backed, but it was for the private sector, by the private sector, was that this private sector innovation, discovering what best practice is, and then doing it voluntarily, mm -hmm. makes that process of regulating quicker and easier yeah. and it emboldens policymakers to do it so one of the things we were working on in the cop 26 unit uh was making tcfd climate related disclosures mandatory for g7 countries and, and beyond um and that that you know ultimately that happened on the cop 26 but having been involved in it i can say that wouldn't have happened if the tcfd didn't exist and the tcf and there weren't thousands of companies already doing tcfd disclosures yeah. um yeah. so what we're hoping is by providing uh that um case of companies doing this voluntarily but in a high integrity way with guidance there then it helps regulators who want to think about this and we've seen this with the transition plan task force which i mentioned earlier you know gfans is on the steering group as is the fca and i think the fca are doing great great work in this space we speak to them a lot i think you know treasury in the uk and bank of England as well we speak to them a lot but we also have a reporting relationship to the financial stability board which was set up by the g20 i imagine everyone on on fifth's uh, listenership probably knows what the fsb is but it has treasuries <laughs> securities regulators it has the imf it has iosco it has all the global standard setters large majority uh, of central banks you know and then it has not just the g20 but financial centers like like singapore and and switzerland so we you know last week mark carney and mary presented to fsb plenary on all of this work so i think hopefully the work of gfans promotes consistency promotes integrity uh prevents fragmentation which can actually delay progress and implementation so i think we are seeing that but i think it's a really good point and it is very front and center of our mind of how do we work with regulators to support them in this uh space yeah yeah no brilliant um i think that's that's perhaps a nice a nice uh, part to finish um is there anything else you would like to add or for our listeners to to take away with them no, I think uh, it's been great talking to you today. Um, you know, if anyone does want, is interested in anything I've said today, do feel free to contact me. I don't know if I could put the email on, but it's amickey at gfanzero.com. And, and, you know, this is only going to be achieved ultimately through quite radical collaboration between the financial sector, you know, financial commentators, civil society, governments, etc., and and we're here to facilitate that and and push it forward. So, if anyone's interested in supporting us or collaborating in any way, do get in touch. Brilliant. Well, thank you so much for for joining me today, Alex. It was a really excellent conversation and and really positive as well, um, which is always nice. <laughs> Great. <laughs> thank, you, thank you so much, and and thank you to our listeners as well. You can subscribe to this and all our other po uh, podcasts on Spotify and iTunes. Thank you so much, Alex. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the OnFifth podcast.